This week's episode is sponsored by Boost. In today's world, students have to keep up with more. More assignments, more demands, more to remember. That's why schools love Boost. It's an outcomes-driven notification app that connects securely to Canvas to give students due date reminders, personalized nudges, and positive feedback straight to their phones. Boost is proven to help students earn higher grades and pass more classes. Best of all, it's completely free and requires no training for teachers or staff. Visit www.boost.education to learn more. Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. The year was 1937. A dangerous and mysterious virus was sweeping across the U.S., and schools quickly shut down to try to slow the spread. Many large school systems looked to technology to try to keep learning going while students and teachers couldn't safely meet in person. That's right, I said 1937 was the year, so this isn't COVID we're talking about. The viral disease was polio. Obviously, there were no iPads or Chromebooks or smartphones at that time, no internet at all. So the technology schools turned to was the major broadcast medium of that day. District office came up with the idea of using radio. That's Larry Cuban, a longtime historian of education and a school reformer. And the school system he's referring to that turned to radio the most at the time was the Chicago public school system. He notes that this moment set a precedent for the idea of emergency remote instruction. So they had the idea of um, creating radio lessons for different parts of the curriculum for both elementary and secondary schools. So some of these lessons were recorded in studios and then beamed out, and they would then have schedules where they could turn into a social studies, a science lesson at a certain time of the day. Back in that year, in 1937, a broadcasting magazine ran an article describing how this radio teaching system worked. I want to read part of that. Each period of time on a station is directed to a particular class, such as 8A or 2B or 5A. Enough time has been donated by all Chicago stations to cover the six elementary grades. First and second grades are not included. Actually, newspapers also donated space and printed lessons for students that went along with these radio broadcasts. Uh, A little more from the article here. Quote, when the pupils go back to school they will be given examinations on the material covered in the combined radio and newspaper lessons. Some allowance will be made for children whose homes lack radio sets. Um, Yeah, here we are in 2022 um, and COVID dealing with some of these very same issues. But did that period of remote instruction back in the 30s lead to broader changes in schooling? That's one of the questions that Larry Cuban explores in his new book, Confessions of a School Reformer. The book is part history, part memoir, as Cuban looks back over his career and the various reform movements that he's been a part of. And he offers some reflections and thoughts on where things might go after the current period of disruption. Cuban is an emeritus professor of education at Stanford University. And at age 87, he has a lot to look back on. He was actually alive back in 1937, though he was actually too young to be in school at the time, so he didn't listen to those radio lessons. 
He started his career teaching high school social studies for 14 years. At one point, he directed a teacher education program that prepared returning Peace Corps volunteers to teach in inner city schools. And for seven years, he served as a district superintendent of schools for Arlington County Public Schools outside of D.C. And over the years, he has weighed in on big issues of school reform in books and on his blog, which has the straightforward title, Larry Cuban on School Reform and Classroom Practice. I connected with Larry Cuban last week. We get back to that story of Chicago's remote radio instruction later on, but I started the conversation by asking, why did he call this book Confessions of a School Reformer? What is he confessing? It comes from a turn of the 20th century reformer who was a progressive. And uh, he, he wrote a book, Confessions of a Reformer. Uh, he didn't have the adjective school in front of reformer, as I do. But I was very taken with that book because uh, as a progressive reformer, he was very active and uh, made substantial contributions in the early 20th century to uh, progressive thought and actions, uh, particularly across different states. And I thought that would, uh, his name was uh, Frederick Howell, H-O-W-E. And I thought that would be a great uh, title because what he saw and what he confessed to was that, hey, this is a much bigger, more complex thing than I ever thought it was. And that's one of the confessions I make in my book. Schooling is intricate, very complex. And when I say schooling, I mean, uh, I mean the governance, the organization, and the uh, curriculum, and the actual teaching. All of that together is far more complex than most people think it is. And um, uh, and so I I spend a lot of time trying to unravel that complexity because everyone has been a student once and they think schooling is it's not that complex. I did it. I went through it and I was a student for 12, sometimes 20 years, all the way from K to graduate school. So I know what it's like in school. Well, you really don't because of the interaction of the society with the schools and the different levels of schooling, the governance, the organization, and then instruction. Most people do not really understand teaching when you're behind a desk looking at a teacher. It sounds like even as a, from the teacher's perspective, there's a lot of, um, you know, that nuance is really hard to understand. Uh, I think it, I think it is. Uh, I was a teacher uh, for um, well, well over 15 years. Well, uh, about, you know, about 15 years. And I didn't come to understand what I was doing until much reflection and much evaluation and much reading later on. You, you note at one point in the book that, that in some ways you're a scarred school reformer. And I'm curious what, that, what those scars are. What does that mean? As I move through the different phases of my career as a teacher, as a, uh, a school site administrator, as a district administrator, and then as a professor, I, I had to give up certain ideas that I thought were terrific, but I saw that 
they didn't materialize or they had what I would call unanticipated consequences that were perverse. So I realized that what I thought were golden opportunities to make reforms, and this is, and I tried to write scripts for that to happen many, many years ago. I saw the, I saw the evolving complexity of schooling in the sense that they evolved in my thinking that, hey, this is not as easy as I thought it was. And that, uh, and that I was sometimes foolish in thinking that all you had to do, for example, was to have a teacher create new kinds of curriculum for her classes, and that would make a world of difference in the kids' lives. I believed that at one time. Well, while I continue to believe that that's important that teachers engage in developing their own curriculum, I don't think that that's a panacea as I used to. And uh, I used to think that you change the school and then that'll, uh, you know, that'll mean make the difference in a district and a state and a nation. And while I still think that's very important, whole school reform, uh, it's not the answer I once thought it was. Yeah, I've gone through these phases, and that's that's where the scars accumulate. Sure, sure. I guess, what is your advice to uh, a reformer, maybe just starting out, somebody starting out in this work? My advice would be, uh, I would. The first thing I would say was, uh, uh, teach. You have to be able to have had the experience of being a teacher if what you are seeking is to uh, alter teaching. If that is one of your goals, that you want to see teaching done differently, however you believe it be the case, then you have to understand teaching from the inside. So there are Many policymakers who have not taught a day in their lives, the closest they came to classrooms were to sit behind desks and face teachers. I have, I, I add a shaker full of salt to anything such re- policymakers recommend about teaching because they have never experienced it. And uh, uh, so to understand teaching, you have to teach from my point of view. No, oh, sure. Um, I'm sure it'll resonate with, with teachers in the audience. Um, <laughs> after the break, I ask Larry Cuban what he thinks the legacy of COVID-19 will be for school reform efforts. Stay with us. Every teacher and parent has been there before. A student with great potential just failed to turn in their big assignment. Now doing well this semester just became a lot harder. If only you had the time a few days ago to check in and remind them what was coming due. That's where Boost helps thousands of students keep up and succeed. Boost is an outcomes-driven notification app. Boost gives students due date reminders, personalized nudges, and positive feedback straight to their phones. Backed by peer-reviewed and published research, Boost is proven to help students earn higher grades and pass more classes, all while saving teachers and parents time. Boost sends students intelligent reminders about assignments that are upcoming but not yet turned in. And Boost is already used by students in middle schools, high schools, colleges, and grad schools 
to succeed every day. Boost is completely free for schools to activate and free for students and parents to download and use in the Apple or Android app stores. Visit www.boost.education to make sure your students never miss an assignment again. Now back to the episode. There's one point that I thought was really interesting, which is that you mentioned that as um, as you as you sort of promoted various approaches, like you mentioned a couple of them just now um, over the years, that it by doing that it it was sort of limiting though in a way that that it put you in the position of being a salesman um, for school for those school reforms. Um, could you say more about that and and what would you do differently maybe? If, if taking that point, when I was a, a salesman for school reforms, uh, it started as a teacher, uh, and I thought that uh, teachers would improve themselves and approve and improve the achievement of their students by creating their own lessons and not depending on a textbook and not depending on uh, commercially. Um, commercially made uh, lessons and materials. And then when I became a superintendent, yes, I became a cheerleader for certain kinds of reform because as a superintendent, that was my job. Uh, to uh, uh, The school board hired me to improve the entire school system. And uh, there were, in the district that I was superintendent, there were over a thousand teachers. So that uh, they were part of my, they were a primary part of my audience as well as the parents uh, of the students uh, in the district. Yeah, so I uh, I was a salesperson. Yeah, and I have no regrets about that. That was my position. And now, as a professor, do I believe that some reforms are better than others? Sure. Do, do I believe that trying to reform teaching? is one of the hardest tasks that people have, and they generally pursue it in, a, in foolish ways. Yeah, I still believe that. Yeah, and I confess to all those things. Have I made mistakes? Have I committed errors? You bet. I want to come back to the, to the present for a minute, because what, what do you see, broader than just the online instruction piece that we talked about, what, what do you see as the legacy of, of COVID-19 in various school reform efforts? And where do you think things go from here? Well, first of all, uh, Jeff, I don't see uh, COVID producing a lot of reforms. I don't. I think what, uh, if anything, it produces this huge public and professional need to resume schooling as it was. I think basically schooling has much more stability than change in it. And that's the historian's point of view. Both, both are important. There have been changes in schooling over the last century, but stability has been uh, dominant from my point of view. And um, I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of stability. And I think COVID has reminded us that all parents want is a return to face-to-face -to -face teaching and let the teachers teach the lessons that they had before 
the, the school closures and let them do what they do best. Yeah. So um, I, uh, I, I'm a great believer in this stability. Uh, I don't think, uh, I don't, uh, if for those that say that online instruction will be the next big reform, I don't accept that. I think, ref um, I think remote instruction is now part of the toolkit for administrators and uh, teachers when things shut down. There is going to be other shutdowns. I hope not for pandemic, uh, but there will be shutdowns for floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, natural disasters. And so this remote instruction has had a trial run and will be a part of uh, the arsenal that district administrators and teachers will have. That's about all I, but I don't think the, uh, I cannot see any reforms unless you can. And I wish if you can tell me what they are that will come out of COVID. Well, I guess it, it seems like the environment around schools is changing for sure though. And the politics um, across the whole country in general and the polarization and the, the so it does feel like that part may have an impact right on what um what happens next but that's a little different than which models persevere i guess no, no well that's fair uh people have pointed out to me in, on my blog that uh, uh that the conflicts now over schools what they should teach uh, and uh, certification of teachers. And a lot of that stuff, I point out, has occurred repeatedly in the past. There have been uh, hugely polarized uh, controversies over schools in the past. And this is not the first time. Uh, I can talk about uh, polarization uh, insofar as evolution, the teaching of evolution in schools in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, uh, the polarization that occurred over whether schools should have sex education in them. There have been these kinds of controversies time and again. So when people talk about uh, after the, clo the, uh, the politics of schooling now and the conflicts and it makes uh, the New York Times front page and all of that, I say, yeah, yeah, this is not a new thing. And, but uh, it's important to know that this has happened in the past and there will continue to be political conflicts over schools because schools have multiple values. People pay taxes because they have a vision of what they want in their good school. And those visions of goodness in schools vary among neighbors among uh, people in the same family. And that will continue. So these conflicts are not unique that are going on today. As a historian, I, I've seen them repeatedly in the history of public schools in this country. That's a, that's a good perspective. Um, what, as you put this book together, what surprised you the most? What, what was something that crystallized for you? Uh, the insight that I had uh, that prompted the book goes like this. I began school in 1939 as a five-year-old. 
okay? I went into elementary school. The progressive movement was underway and had been underway for three decades and really didn't end until the mid-50s when I finished uh, uh, public school. Uh, so I entered, the insight is that I've experienced the progressive movement as a student, and then as a teacher for 15 years, I experienced the civil rights movement. And then as a superintendent, I experienced the business-driven standards uh, testing and accountability movement. Those have been the three major school reform movements of the 20th century. And lo and behold, I had experienced all three as a student, a teacher, and as a superintendent, and then as a professor. And I said, hey, now that's really interesting. So the book has alternate chapters of me as a student during the progressive movement in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up and went to school, as a teacher in Cleveland and Washington, D.C., during the civil rights movement, and then uh, as a, prof uh, as a uh, superintendent during the business-driven uh, reform movements of the uh, 70s and early 80s. So I experienced all of these, and I said, hey, there is a book in that of having a chapter of me as a student, a chapter of me as a teacher, and a chapter of me as a superintendent. And, uh, and then other chapters of these three re uh, reform movements. So I alternate in the book a, a personal chapter with an analytic chapter of the school reform movement, progressive, civil rights, and business-driven. And that's, that's, uh, I had that insight. It came to me that I experienced all of these movements myself. Yeah, I'm old. That is correct. But I'm still, I, I like to think that I'm still coherent and I have all my cognitive faculties and it's worth a book. Oh, that's great. And I guess I was struck by the continued, you know, um, work to be done, as you might say, right? That, it, that, that you didn't come away saying that despite all of that, um, you know, that, 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 that things are kind of done in any way. Never. No, uh, reform is an unending process. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's not predictable because of the many values that people strive for in their schools. And the, the fact of value conflicts around reform has been ever-present, historically and contemporary. That's ever-present. So you're going to always have those conflicts and it's an ongoing because there's always a new generation that says, hey, these schools are really bad and we got to change them. Now, that's been an inherent kind of discovery of every generation of Americans. That's how ongoing school reform has been. All right. Well, thank you for this, um, for this time. And thanks for, um, for, for, yeah, for, for making time for us. And we appreciate, um, your, your insights. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. Every week we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please subscribe wherever you listen. 
and take a minute to give us a rating or a review. And sign up for our EdSurge podcast newsletter to get reminders about every episode that we come out with and links to bonus material related to the topics that we dive into. This week, you can see a picture of students huddled around a radio back in the 1930s getting their lessons. Just go to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at jryoung. Music this episode by Revolution Void. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.